You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Economics tells you how things happen, and it tells you why things happen. But all we really care about in our personal lives is what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And economics is as useless as a Ouija board on those subjects. Satirist and journalist P.J. O'Rourke. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, can you think of a drier, more boring subject than economics. And there's a reason that even economists call it the dismal science. But you put it in the hands of somebody like P.J. O'Rourke, and suddenly economics takes on a whole new resonance and relevance, and more than a little humor. And the title of his 1998 treatise on economics, Eat the Rich, seems to have particular relevance today. Indeed, the ongoing debate over capitalism versus socialism is as powerful and relevant today as it was when I interviewed PJ 25 years ago. So here now, from 1998, PJ O'Rourke. I have to tell you, it's been a, quite a while since I interviewed the author of a treatise. Yeah, if that's even how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite a while since I wrote one. <laughs> this is quite an undertaking. In fact, I, w- I was amazed at how slim this volume is. I kept worrying about that. I, uh, to undertake a subject like economics is sort of like, uh, you know, explaining, uh, I don't even know what, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, what it would, uh, what, what I would compare well, that let's, to. Well, let's put it this way. Your book is thinner than the Ken Davis book on the Bible. So It's thinner it's just... than the Star Report, <laughs> and if not quite as racy. Although, you know, it's not, not, not as racy, but it has its moments. No. There are some marvelous moments of drama in this book. Yeah, you know, will they starve in Russia? Which, of course, was an open question when I was over there, but uh, the answer is apparently yes, they they are going to starve. But not before they have hyperinflation first so that they can get an Adolf Hitler. (laughs) Why is it, because I'm a fellow Economics 101 dropout. Yeah. Why is it that we undertake to study something like economics, and after 10, maybe 12 minutes, we decide... I can't handle this, and we put it away. Well, I think uh, we undertake to study it for very good reasons. Uh, money makes the world go round. You know, love, death, and money is my thesis. Is that uh, of the you know the non-spiritual parts of life, at least the material world, love, death, and money. That's it. Uh, but the but the you know economics is taught so badly. It is really awful. If you read Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, which is actually a surprisingly good read, you wouldn't want to go through the whole thing. I mean, you can skip around in there, but I mean, the man is just absolutely brilliant. Uh, I mean, he just saw stuff that other people had never seen before. But there's not a mathematical formula in that book. Not a single one. Not a graph. Nothing. Because economics, fundamentally economics, is moral reasoning. It's all about, you know, are we free and responsible individuals or or are we meat puppets? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm pretty much a meat puppet, I think. (laughs) I'm heading in that direction myself. (laughs) But, you know, I, I think I remember the Samuelson text. That you mentioned in, in well, practically in your book. everybody our age, uh, it's gone now. It's not as popular now, but practically everybody uh, over the age of forty or so would have had and took econ. Would have taken would have taken a Samuel Samuelson's uh, 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 economics. 
1974, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I think that was what put me to sleep. I, they lost it's me somewhere a, around elasticity. It's such a bad book. It's such a bad book because not only is, does it take an exciting subject and render it just dreadful, but he's also wrong. He's just wrong about And, I mean, you don't have to be an expert to see that he's wrong. I mean, he talks about, he says, Karl Marx was uh, was the, the you know the, he was wrong in many ways, but that does not detract from his importance as an economist. <laughs> well, what would <laughs> if he was wrong in many ways and made a pass at the babysitter? I don't you know. And almost started World War Three. Almost started <laughs> World War Three. Yes, well, you have to give the guy his due though. He was a good. He was economist. important. He was an important <laughs> economist because he gave a lot of a lot of bad people a lot of bad ideas. But whether he was a good economist, well, maybe maybe the distinction needed to be made, as now you've made it in this book, that there the, the distinction between good capitalism and bad capitalism. One of the things I tried to do in this book was pair uh, sets of countries, uh, pair sets of economic systems. I went to two socialist places, uh, Cuba and Sweden. I went to two capitalist places, Wall Street and Albania. Uh, and, you know, I'm looking for socialism at its best, socialism at its worst, ca capitalism at its best. Well, I don't know if Wall Street's at its best. It's certainly at its most frenetic. Uh, mm. Uh, and in uh, Albania, that was capitalism at its worst, all right. You had market <laughs> freedoms. I mean, you could buy an AK-47 for three U.S. bucks on the street. You know? <laughs> that is a free market, folks. Um, and then I also paired um, uh, two countries that aren't usually lumped together in a sentence, uh, Tanzania and Hong Kong. I was looking for some place that had all sorts of natural resources. It was a peaceful place with nice people and, and it seemed to have on the face of it some advantages, uh, which is Tanzania, uh, versus a place that has nothing. Uh, Hong Kong has to import its water, even. And of course, it's grossly overpopulated and uh, would seem to have lots of disadvantages on the face of it. And yet one of these places, I believe Hong Kong is the well, with the Asia crisis, it's a little hard to keep up, but at least in theory, Hong Kong's about the third richest place on earth after, or maybe fourth, U.S., Switzerland, and Luxembourg, I think, are the, uh, and followed by Hong Kong. And, uh, and Tanzania is one of the ten poorest countries in the world, except for, you know, I mean, we, there are some countries you, you, you get shot if you go into, so we're not quite <laughs> sure about how Afghanistan stands. But as far as anybody's able to measure, um, um, uh, Tanzania is one of the ten poorest countries on earth. You know. But it's got diamonds, and it's got uh, uh, uranium, and it's got uh, all sorts of natural... If you took Tanzania and just chunked it out of Africa and set it down over Kansas City, people would be flocking to the center of this country. Oh, yeah, except that, uh, well, the more so, because Tanzania's got a beautiful, beautiful seacoast. It's where Zanzibar Island is. Yeah, it's got a lot going for it, and, and the problem with Tanzania was that Tanzania's basically never had private property. You have to have private property. Everybody kind of claims that private property is a bad thing, you know, I mean, right from sort of the New Testament on down. <laughs> but is it really? I mean, it is impossible to be a free person without property rights. Now, those property rights, that's not to make a conservative argument necessarily. I am politically conservative, but Sweden has property rights, too. They may not be the same as ours, but they are guaranteed by law. They are applied to everybody equally. Uh, they are predictable. And in Tanzania, you had this uh, very idealistic guy, Julius Nereri, who ran the country for the first 16, 18 years after independence, and maybe longer. I, uh, not, math is not my long suit, <laughs> as I explained earlier. Um, but anyway, he had this very idealistic vision for Tanzania where they were going to collectivize everything, and he collectivized all the little farms. And it just, you know, they were, you know, a low-level agricultural uh, economy. 
at that time. And of course, it just destroyed everything. It just destroyed what little leg up they had in the world was ruined. After this short break, PJ O'Rourke reveals what he found out that really surprised him. Now back to my 1998 conversation with PJ O'Rourke. But you know, you talk about in your book the, the, the ironies of countries that seem to have nothing but are swimming in wealth and other countries that have a wealth of everything and are dirt poor and bad socialism, good communism, good, or, or good yeah, capitalism. Good communism is hard to find. Well, yeah, it's just, yeah, there you are. Yeah. That's why we're on tape. I but can, good yeah. capitalism is hard to find, too. So, um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, 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 the thing that, that's kind of surprised me in this book was that I went into it with a lot of uh, uh, pro-free market attitudes because I, I'm a conservative. I'm, I'm kind of a libertarian conservative. I, I, I believe in this, but it was a gut feeling. I didn't really know why I believe. It was a gut feeling and it was an experiential thing. I mean, free market countries are just lots richer than non-free market countries. Uh, but what I discovered was uh, that what was so important to the, uh, the wealth, prosperity, the happiness of a country turned out to be rule of law. It actually turned out to be government. And I'm a guy who's been going around for years saying, get the government out of our face, get the government out of this, get the government out of that. And I wasn't wrong about that, but uh, what I wasn't paying enough attention to, I think, was that uh, the, 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 the core, how important the, the core values of a government, I mean, there may be a lot of bad government programs, but a government has to, have, has to be democratic, it has to apply the law equally to everyone, uh, and it has to guarantee uh, you certain rights over uh, uh, you know, the things that you have and the things that you do and the product of your, uh, of your, of your efforts. And if it fails to do those things, um, the result is Cuba. But you can have a pretty crazy economic system like the Swedes have, where the Swedes all work really hard and then get taxed at an 80% rate. <laughs> 80% of your money goes to the government. But the government gives you back a lot of things. You get a lot of benefits from the government in Sweden, like you get ice skating in July. You know? Maybe you don't <laughs> want ice skating in July, but you, it's there. It's there for you. That's and you get, you know, you can take between family leave and medical leave and personal leave and, 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 and legally required paid vacation, you can get about 480 days a year off work in Sweden. Uh, and so you get a lot of benefits. But it's a nutty system, but it works because it is done under rule of law. It is done under a democratic system. If the Swedes decide this doesn't work or they decide that they don't like this or they would rather have a more uh, U.S. free market type, that they would rather be richer instead of fairer, um, they can change it anytime they want. Now, in Cuba, all the power is arbitrary. All the power is arbitrary, and as a result, Cuba is a real hellhole, even though it, theoretically it has the same philosophical system as Sweden. Well, it also struck me how, how so many of these economies, whether they're good economies, strong economies, or bad ones and weak ones, really are on a, on a very small pivot point. I mean, one just a couple of factors one way or the other, and the, the fortunes could be reversed in a matter of a very short period of time. Well, economies uh, where, where there is a lot of arbitrary power, uh, which includes corruption uh, as well as totalitarianism, are always very fragile. You may have a, 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 a very what appears to be a very strong economy, as South Korea appeared to be just very recently, 
And yet South Korea was riddled with corruption. It was not the kind of, um, of uh, fundamental corruption you had in the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, you know, it's not gangsters and stuff. It was collusion between the governments and the big banks, collusion among uh, big industrial cartels. Uh, the law did not apply. For instance, the bankruptcy law did not apply. If you were, uh, if you were a great big corporation, you couldn't go broke. The government would come in and bail you out. You remember the things we had problems we had with our savings and loan crisis, mm-hmm. where the, where you had freedom and responsibility. That's a great balancing act. And the, savings and loan was all freedom. Guys like Jim McDougal, rest his soul. Uh, could do anything they wanted with their money, including making some very fishy investments for our president. Uh, but he had no responsibility. That government was uh, that money was government insured. And and the big cartels in, in in South Korea, and many other places in Asia were operating the same way. They had lots of freedom but no responsibility. When you have lots of freedom and no responsibility, uh, you get uh, Albania. Uh, you get a situation of chaos, anarchy. When you have lots of responsibility and no freedom, you get slavery, you get a gulag. Well, in the end, if we're talking about our own economy and our place in the economy, does it matter what my stock in IBM is doing on any given day, or does it matter more that my family is able to find a decent job? Does it matter more that I have uh, $150 in my savings account? What's What are the economic guidelines that I should be looking at to gauge the, the health of the economy in which I'm living and functioning? Well, oddly enough, the most important thing about the health of an economy is its moral health, not its uh, physical prosperity. Um, if you live under a system which balances freedom and responsibility, which, which contains rule of law uh, and, and, and which protects your property rights and has democracy, uh, you will be likely, at least in the long term, um, um, to uh, have some measure of all of those things that you want. Uh, whether you're going to get them at any given moment, I mean, does, 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 does freedom and responsibility and democratic government and rule of law protect us from bad luck? Does it keep us from eventually dying? Does it protect us from our own bad business judgments? Does it protect us from various vicissitudes, meteor hitting the earth, OPEC? <laughs> I mean, no, of course it doesn't. But the thing is, without um, the freedom of a free market, you will be guaranteed misery. You will be absolutely guaranteed misery. So what it is, we have to set up a moral, uh, intellectual, uh, 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 governmental um, uh, uh, situation, a civil society uh, that protects those things that we know can be conducive to economic growth. And then we have to work like hell to make the economic growth happen and still keep our fingers crossed. But if we try and if we think that we can pick and choose among things, that we can have job security for everyone, um, uh, you know, at no cost to ourselves, or that we can guarantee everyone a certain income, or that we, if we think we can organize freedom, it won't be freedom anymore. And once it isn't freedom, we'll surely get misery. Hadn't I read somewhere that uh, the unemployment rate in 1929 was only about 3% and the, the economy looked really sound and healthy back then? Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> and uh, the, the Great Depression, you know, that, that, that kind of thing can happen again. Um, but if it does happen again, you know, and, and, and it will cause a lot of misery, it's better to endure that misery in a free country than to endure it in Siberia. You know? And then people will point to something like uh, Mussolini or Hitler and say, well, totalitarian governments can guarantee good economies. Not if you were Jewish, I'm afraid, you know, and not if you were in one of their death camps. It didn't guarantee that. And as a matter of fact, both Italy 
and uh, Germany as they cranked up for World War II were not very prosperous places. Uh, they cooked the statistics for one thing, and people got shot if they complained. Well, and certainly the Soviet Union's economy yeah. was not nearly what we were led to believe all those years that it the, was. The, the CIA, in its infinite wisdom, the, the agency that had to read about the uh, India's atomic bomb tests in the New York <laughs> Times, um, they, they used to estimate that the gross domestic product per capita in the, uh, in the old Soviet Union was nearly as high as Britain's. Now, anybody who had been there, anybody who had been there and looked and smelled the place, and you didn't even have to have eyes. You, you could have been blind and deaf if your nose was working. You could tell that that was not the case. So one thing is it won't tell you. One thing my book won't tell you. I'd like to be the only author of a book that had anything to do with money who's ever said this. You will not get rich by reading my book. In fact, you'll be poorer by the cost of the book. Uh, I, I can guarantee you that because uh, one of the number of things I found out about economics coming into this as kind of an English major type was that economics tells you, uh, uh, the, you know, how things happen, and it tells you why things happen. But all we really care about in our personal lives is what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And economics is as, as useless as a Ouija board uh, uh, on those subjects. P.J. O'Rourke died of cancer in 2022. He was 74. Now you can get a copy of Eat the Rich by P.J. O'Rourke by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and that's where you'll also find one of my many interviews with Dave Barry. This one from 1990. You want whoever's flying the airplane to be older than you. You want him to be Walter Cronkite, and helping him would be Eric Severide. You know? And instead, it's like the Beastie Boys. These, they're, like they're, they're raising money for their class trip. You know, we're going to fly a plane today. And my 1986 conversation with filmmaker John Waters. My sense of humor is a little bit off the beaten track, certainly. I'm trying to make everybody laugh at things that basically they find horrifying in real life. And I don't think that's sick. I think that's a weird kind of mental health in a way. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything, say it with me, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, I'll bet you there's a lot of songs that you hear her voice on and you don't even know it's her that you're listening to. One of the great backup singers of the 1960s and 70s, my 1998 interview with Darlene Love. They thought of me as being one of the greatest background singers there was. So to be able to be on their records... They was like wonderful. I mean, they respected me for the talent that I had. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.